We've just finished our series on faith. And I don't know about you, but my faith uh, feels like it's got a sharper edge to it, like it's been honed on a wet stone. After Easter, we're going to start a series on prayer. And of course, faith and prayer are like, are like interlocking fingers, right? Um, that they both need each other. Um, it's kind of hard to know where one starts and where the other one ends or which comes first. Is it, is it faith that leads to prayer or is it prayer that leads to faith? Faith and prayer were meant for each other. If faith and, the, and prayer were out on a date, then faith would say to prayer, prayer, you complete me. And prayer would turn around and look straight back at faith and say, you know what? I was just going to say exactly the same thing. You complete me. So I'd like to, I, I, I'd like us to imagine that uh, faith and prayer are like um, two, two parts of a hinge, you know, like a door hinge. And they fit together like this, okay? So let's say that the gray bits are faith and the colored bits are prayer. It's a beautiful thing. But it's not the whole picture because there's something missing. Because the thing with the hinge is that it needs a pin to sort of fit in between the hingey bits um, to, because if it's not there, then the hinge will fall apart and the door won't function. And so over this next month, we will be looking at this linchpin that, uh, that somehow connects faith and prayer together. And the linchpin, this linchpin is unique to the Christian faith. You know, you don't find it in, in Hinduism or, or in Islam or in humanism or in socialism or whatever the other isms are it's not there and this linchpin is incredible because this linchpin is what gives faith its foundation and it's what gives prayer its power it gives faith its foundation and prayer its power I mean can you imagine faith without a solid foundation or 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 can you imagine prayer without any power? Now, unfortunately, the answer is probably yes, because we see it all the time. We see foundationless faith, which is kind of vague and wispy and floaty and like, you know, those cirrus clouds high up in the sky above. There's no heft to it. It's not really connected to anything. Faith without foundation is too light. It just floats away. It floats on currents of niceness and well-meaning and whatever society says is right at the moment. It's like a helium-filled balloon, right? It just, it just like floats up and there's nothing to anchor it. There's nothing to hold it down. Faith without foundation is too light. On the other hand, prayer without power is too heavy, Prayer that comes out of the mouth and just falls straight on the ground with a thump that collapses under its own weight that never gets further than the ends of our lips. It's this, this prayer without power has no expectation of being answered. Uh, and so prayer without power is too heavy. Uh, it's, it, it, it's like a plane without an engine, right? And a plane without an engine, like we know, cannot fly. A plane needs an engine to fly. And here's my incredible plane. A plane needs an engine if it's going to get lift off. 
So we have this lightweight, floaty faith up here that needs to be anchored, that needs a foundation. And we have, uh, and we have prayer, which is powerless, down here, that needs an engine, that needs power, that needs liftoff. So that it can go where it needs to, into the ears of God. So we need something to secure our faith to, and we need something to elevate our prayers. Um, or, like I said earlier, we need a linchpin that can um, join, that can hinge our faith together with our prayer, and our prayer together with our faith, if we're going to see the door of God's blessing open. But the question is, what is that thing? What is that hinge? What is it that hinges prayer? What is it that gives power and lift off to our prayer? And what is it that grounds and gives foundation to our faith? Well, the answer is that it's the cross. It's the cross of Jesus. It's the Easter cross. It's that Roman um, instrument of torture and of death, highly cruel and highly effective. This is the linchpin. It's it's the cross that gives foundation to faith. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live, here it is, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, a.k.a. the cross. So the cross is what gives foundation to faith. And it's also what gives power to prayer. Romans chapter 8 verse, verse 32 says, says this, He who did not spare his own son, a.k.a. the cross, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, give graciously give us all things, a.k.a. answer our prayers? And so there in between faith and prayer lies the cross. It's... It's the cross that brings weight and heft to our prayers. It gives substance to it, um, or sorry, it gives heft and weight to our faith, substance to our faith, and it gives power to our prayers. It gives wings and wing, wings and altitude to our prayers. And so as we head into Easter, it's really important that, that uh, we understand what lies at the, right at the juxtaposition of faith and prayer. It's the suffering and the death and the resurrection of of Jesus Christ, followed by his ascension and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't actively engage in remembering the uh, centrality of the cross, then, then what we're left with is a zombie faith that's had its beating heart ripped out of it. We're a, we're a hinge without a linchpin that just falls apart. We, we have the form of godliness, but we don't have the power, as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says. And that's why we'll be spending the next, ne- next, um, next, well, next couple of weeks leading up to Easter, nosing around Isaiah chapter 53. And this morning, we will pay particular attention to verses 1 uh, to 3 of Isaiah 53. So please turn there with me. Today's reading is from the book of Isaiah. Chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. 
He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This is the word of the Lord. Isaiah was written over 700 years before Jesus. And yet as we read it, we can clearly see that it's about Jesus. In fact, Isaiah uh, is quoted in, in the New Testament time, uh, in the New Testament writings over and over and over again because it was recognized even in the, in, the, in the early church, in the infant church, that it was a prophetic book. Listen to these words from the open Bible. It says, Israel is like a miniature Bible. The first 39 chapters, like the 39 books of the Old Testament, are filled with judgment upon immoral and idolatrous people. Judah has sinned. The surrounding nations have sinned. The whole earth has sinned. Judgment must come for God. Cannot allow such blatant sin to go unpunished forever. But the final 27 chapters, like the 27 books of the New Testament, um, They declare a message of hope that the Messiah is coming as a savior and sovereign to bear a cross and to wear a crown. Or in the words of Warren Wearsby, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are filled with condemnation, whereas the second 27 chapters are filled with consolation. So it's like a miniature Bible. I love that. And the name Isaiah actually means salvation of the Lord. And this book is all about salvation, whether it's from... uh, human agencies like the, like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or from sin and judgment from God himself. And so, and so we find chapter 53 located right there in the middle of the consolation um, part of the book, of the latter part of the book. And, uh, and, this, and this chapter, chapter 53, kind of acts like a magnifying glass uh, to, to show us how salvation was achieved and affected for us. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's when we understand how great the salvation is that our faith will have a foundation and that our prayers will have power. So this morning, let's look at verses 1 to 3, where we see Jesus painted not as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but... Instead, he's presented as average guy Jesus, as next door Jesus, as ordinary guy Jesus. Verse 1 um, says this, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the message words it like this, Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? Now, I, I watched a video this week on YouTube where the voice actor of Bart Simpson met someone um, selling, selling some cookies for scouts or something like this. And, you know, the thing is, is that the voice of Bart Simpson is actually a woman. Her name is Nancy Cartwright. And, uh, and, so, she's, and so she's talking to this lad outside Walmart or Kmart or something like that. And then, and, and then she does the voice. And, and, and then the lad says to her, hey... You know, that's a really good impression. But then he finally twigs that this is Bart Simpson. And his face, when he realizes that this woman in front of him is Bart Simpson, is absolutely priceless. Because who would have thought that the voice of, that, that, uh, that Bart Simpson's voice looks like a 63-year-old woman? And Jesus didn't look like what uh, people thought the Messiah should look like. Who... Who could have imagined that God's epic plan of salvation was packaged like this? 
And so for the people in Jesus' time, the fact that Jesus, that, that the Savior or the Messiah um, or the Christ looked like Jesus was unbelievable. It was shocking. Really, God's saving power looks like this? And then verse 2 takes this theme and it runs with it. He grew up before him, him, him being God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so not only was Jesus unbelievable as the Messiah, as God's saving one, he was also uprooted. Okay, listen to the words. It talks about a tender shoot. It talks about a root out of dry ground. And so not only was Jesus like a tender root, but he was, but, but the root of this shoot wasn't even planted in soil. It was now hanging in the middle of the air. The one who was called the root of Jesse was uprooted. And if you know anything about horticulture, which I don't, but I do know this, that if you have a tender shoot, then you need to be careful with it. You, you need to treat it with TLC. And that does not include suspending it in midair and leaving it there with no soil. But Jesus was uprooted. He was out of place. He was not where he rightfully belonged. The mightiest being in the entire universe was now a frail and a weak human being. He was uprooted. He was in a situation where thriving was impossible. If uh, Jesus was graduating high school, he would not have been voted the most likely to succeed. And then Isaiah goes on. He says that he had no, no beauty, no majesty to to attract us to him. There was nothing in Jesus' appearance that we should desire him. Friends, you would have not looked at Jesus in those times and said, this is someone who I need to attach myself to, who I need to be seen with um, so I can succeed. You know, the, 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 you know, here's someone that I need to move in his circles. You would not have looked at Jesus and thought that. And so this, this verse, uh, verse 3 uh, verse 2, um, it might be saying that Jesus was ordinary, he was run-of-the-mill, he was average, he was nothing special, or it could even mean that Jesus was actually ugly. Um, I mean, can you imagine an ugly Jesus? Have we, you know, have we ever seen Jesus painted looking ugly? There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Psalm uh, 27 verse 4 says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Well, uh, David, you might want to change your one wish. You know, you might really want to reconsider what your one wish is. Um, maybe it's worth actually having a peek around the corner and see what Jesus looks like, and then you can make an informed call whether you want to spend the rest of your life gazing on this individual's beauty. There was, there was no majesty. There was, there was no majesty. Jesus was totally forgettable. He was aweless, not awesome. Now, there were moments like, like on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' majesty and Jesus' beauty shone through. 
that in general he had no beauty and no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You see, when Jesus became human, he gave all that up. His glory was veiled. He made himself nothing. And, it, and, it, and him making himself nothing kind of started here with, with being un, unremarkable, with being totally forgettable, maybe even ugly. He was the next door Jesus. He was that neighbor who you would say hi to, but you don't really know them and you're not sure if you'd be able to pick them out in a crowd. Jesus had one of those faces. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. So not only was Jesus unbelievable as the Messiah, not only was he uprooted as the Messiah, but he was also unloved as the Messiah. Now, this well, now this this verse could well be talking about Jesus after the torture and the suffering of the cross, but where it's positioned in Isaiah chapter 53 near, near the start, it could just be talking about how Jesus was treated in his life, right? He was that weird kid who stayed in the temple talking to the smart, smart adults uh, and who let people, uh, who let his parents leave for home without him. Do you think that Jesus being like that um, one friends with the boys who just wanted to rough and tumble. Jesus was the one who in Mark chapter 3 verse 21, um, whose, whose, whose family wanted to forcibly take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. Jesus was the one who lost a ton of his followers in John chapter 6 verse 60 and 66 because he told people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Jesus, couldn't you tone it down a bit? It's like you're willfully trying to get people to turn away from you. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He was homeless. And so Jesus was the weird kid. He was the one that, whose family wanted to lock him up. He said things that caused people to want to leave him, and he was homeless. And so no wonder that John says in John chapter 1 verse 10 that he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Yes, Jesus was loved by the outcasts and the downtrodden and the sexually broken. He was loved by the outsiders and the Gentiles. But let's not forget that he did not fit into society's idea of what a Messiah should look like. He was... He was unbelievable. He was uprooted and he was unloved. Verse, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind. Listen to the language here. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. He was, he was the person who you would see walking towards you down the street and you would turn away and pretend that you hadn't seen them. Would we have treated Jesus any differently? Probably not. We'd have wanted to lock him up. We'd have thought of him as weird. We'd have pretended that we were talking on the phone so that we wouldn't have to engage with him. That would have been us. Next week, we're going to delve further into Isaiah chapter 53, and it's going to get worse uh, before it gets better. But here's two things that I want to leave with you um, as we then move into communion together. First, 
Jesus did all of this, all of Isaiah 53, 1, 1 to 3. Jesus did this for you. He was, he was unbelieved for you. He was uprooted for you. He was unloved for you. He did this for you. He entered into the fullness of the human experience. He became fully human. He was a refugee. He was a homeless person. He was a person who said the wrong thing at the wrong time in society's eyes. He became the crazy person for you. He went through all this without sin. And he lived a perfect life for you so that when he hung on the cross, he could be the perfect representation of all of the humanity right down to the dregs of society. So that when he bore our sins on the cross, he could say, I am human, therefore I'm paying for the sins of humanity. You see, someone who isn't human cannot take the sins of humanity. Humanity, someone who is only God and not human, cannot take on our sins. You see, if Jesus was going to create a vaccine for the pandemic of sin that, 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 that would work, that would be effective on everyone who wanted to take it, then he had to become human. Jesus became human to provide for your salvation. That's the first thing. And here's the second thing. Jesus became human to tell you that you are not alone. To say to you that he understands. So that he could say to you every time that you come to him weeping, I know what you mean. He knew the loneliness of pain and misunderstanding and rejection. He knew the pain of being overlooked, of being totally, totally ordinary maybe even ugly. Why do you think Jesus prayed so much? Why do you think he took off by himself and made himself scarce so regularly? Because it was the only way that he would get the strength he needed to do the task that he was called to. You know, the fact that he prayed so much is proof of his full humanity he couldn't do it without the Father's help because he was human. You know, Jesus was a visible minority. He was brown-skinned. He worked the trades. He lived in the armpit of an empire. He was conceived in highly suspicious circumstances. Uh, he had a complicated relationship with his blended family. I wonder if any of you are able to relate. Plus... He was accused of working for Satan. And so Hebrews 4 verse 15 is very important. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us therefore approach God's throne of grace uh, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God that you are a high priest who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Lord, would you, would you forgive us for thinking that you don't love us or that you're not there for us? Jesus, you became unbelievable for me. You became uprooted for me. You had no glory or majesty for, for me. 
You were unloved for me so that you could provide full and complete salvation for me and so that you could come alongside me and fully understand all that I'm going through. Lord, soften our hearts when we complain that you don't care. Remind us that you are the next door Jesus, that you are the ordinary guy Jesus. Yes, you're exalted um, and lifted up in your rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, but you still know what it's, what it's like to be me or us. You are still human and you still will be forever. You know what we're going through. Isaiah 40 says this, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, that my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And Lord, we acknowledge that we need your strength. And so as as we move towards Easter, as we remember the... The cross. Lord, we ask that you would remind us that it's the cross that gives power to our prayers. And it's the cross that gives a foundation to our faith. It's the linchpin of the hinge. And so let us glory in the cross. Let us realize once again this heavy weight that you bore. And the costly price that you paid. And the sin that you took upon yourself. And the rejection that you underwent. So that we could be accepted.